You are listening to Taking Charge, the podcast series by Silicon Valley Clean Energy that's taking a deep dive into the electric grid to better understand the often unseen processes that power our lives. From policy to technology, this is your beginner's guide to the grid. So join me as we explore the past, present, and future of clean energy and your role when you plug in. I'm your host, Lauren Goldfarb, and this is Taking Charge. Today, we're going to explore the fascinating history of the U.S. electric grid system. It's a tale of innovation, competing technologies, and inventors at odds that spans a century. And while we could sit and talk about the history of the grid for several hours, I'm going to compress it into a short story titled The History of the Grid Abridged. The year is 1831, and the Industrial Revolution is fueled by a coal-fired steam power, but it's very inefficient. But British scientist Michael Faraday decides to set out to find the more useful form of power. That year, he discovers the principles of electric generation. Faraday takes a tube, wraps it in copper wire, and connects that wire to a machine called a galvanometer, which basically detects electric current. As Faraday passes a magnet through the core of the tube, the magnetic force shifts, and it produces a current to oppose the force Faraday had created. The result? An electric current. Fast forward to 1870. In his New Jersey laboratory, Thomas Edison is using the concept of the electric current to create something that would revolutionize the world, the light bulb. By passing an electric current through the tungsten filament of a bulb, the filament became rapidly heated to a point of being able to produce light. Imagine every time you've seen metal heated, like blacksmiths with swords in the movies. When the metal heats, it becomes bright this is incandescent light. By the 1880s, Edison's light bulbs revolutionized gas lighting and the use of candles, and it transformed electricity from a science to a luxury. In 1882, Edison, with funding support, opens the US's first central power plant in Lower Manhattan, known as Pearl Street Station. And using an underground network of buried copper wires, Edison connected homes and businesses in the surrounding area to the power plant, relying on direct current, meaning the electricity only went in one direction, from the power plant to the customer. And then rather than growing from an epicenter, the grid system in the US spread almost like chicken pox, with small generation plants popping up to power major cities. But with the help of a young Samuel Insull, Edison monopolized the electric grid using the business Commonwealth Edison to consolidate the small generating plants into one large entity. DC current, however, was not easily converted to higher or lower voltages, and this is where Nikolai Tesla takes the stage. Tesla created the AC current, or the alternating current, which could send power currents in either direction, and it was revolutionary. Edison, however, didn't want to lose royalties from DC power, so he leads a huge campaign to discredit the AC current, telling customers that it was dangerous. But in 1893, 
AC current allowed for Niagara Falls to power all of Buffalo, New York. And so Edison jumps on the bandwagon. Today, the grid uses both AC and DC currents. And thank goodness for the grid too. Because of electricity, the US lights up. And so did arts and culture, which brought radio and cinema. Even during the Great Depression, the government developed legislation that brought electricity from the cities to the rural areas. The only issue? A majority of the grid was built with mainly one source of fuel in mind, coal and fossil fuels. So it is pretty interesting to go back and to look at the history both of the electric grid and the gas grid. And they both were developing at around the same time in the 1880s and head to head. It was not clear who was going to be the winner for doing lighting. And back then, lighting was the, the giant value proposition of these grids. Ultimately, Edison and his team had commercialized the uh, overheated wire technology we called incandescent light, and that one ended up being the winner. But for a while, we had three different sources of light competing. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming to the show Tom Cabot. Tom works as an energy and electrification consultant, as well as a board member for Carbon Free Silicon Valley and sunwork.org and holds 30 years of experience with the City of Palo Alto Utilities in resource planning. Welcome, Tom. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, thank you, Lauren. It's my pleasure. Well, we are so excited. Would you mind giving us some background on your professional history? Sure. Well, um, I got interested in the whole energy puzzle while I was in college uh, studying environmental studies and then uh, got a degree in environmental engineering and went to work right out of college for the city of Palo Alto that owns their own municipal utilities. They hired me in as the solar engineer, so I would help people back in those days figuring out if solar thermal water heating or pool heating or solar thermal space heating made sense. Back then, photovoltaics were way too expensive for use here on Earth, and they were mostly a, a space station type of thing. But uh, boy, the, the things have changed over the years, and solar thermal has gotten more expensive just with the climbing cost of labor, and solar photovoltaics made in factories and installed easily has gotten much cheaper. So the two have reversed positions. And that's just part of what's intrigued me over the years in the energy business is the changing landscape and technology evolution. The right things to do keep changing. Interesting. So what do you do today in your current role? Uh, so I retired from the city of Palo Alto about five or six years ago, and I have a, a couple of jobs. I'm a hydropower consultant to the federal government, helping Department of Energy and Bureau of Reclamation manage the 2,000 megawatts of federal hydropower in the north end of the state. So I work with them to optimize that hydro system so that it plays well with the rest of the grid. So it's generating when the renewables are not generating. So we take their place on an hourly basis filling in. And I'm, I'm also energy consultant to a number of projects and entities working on electrification. When talking about the history of the grid and the way it was developed and the fuel sources at the time, a lot of it was powered by coal or other fossil fuels. In your professional experience, how does that impact fuel switching? Can you elaborate what fuel switching means? For a while, we had three different sources of light competing. All these grids became mechanisms for fuel switching. 
And so before these grids, the major sources of light or energy were wood for fires, coal for fires, tallow and candles, and kerosene for lighting. And so then these these gas grids and electric grids came on the scene and competed with those solid fuel transport things where you had to get your energy by horseback or cart. And then we had piped or wired energy into buildings. Things got a lot cleaner once you could pipe or wire the energy into the buildings and use it, these electric devices. So, you know, both of these grids have a long history of fuel switching, and now they're head-to-head in another battle of fuel switching for the fate of the Earth. If today the fuel sources competing are methane, coal, and renewable energy, what are the implications? Well, yeah, so things have evolved in the science of climate change and in the science of what the heck's going on with methane. You know, we had for quite a while self-reporting of methane leaks by the methane shippers. And apparently they may have underreported the amount of leakage that happens. Uh, you know, that may be human nature, but you know, they, they may not have worked hard to find all the leakage, but it turns out now that we're looking at it, our scientists are looking at it, they can tell that, that methane leakage is 30 times as damaging if one molecule of methane leaks compared to if that same molecule got burnt. So methane has this very asymmetric risk profile in, in our use. If only 3% of it is leaked, it's already doubled the climate damage it's doing. Any more than 3%, it's more than doubling, it, and it's worse than burning coal to do the same job. So what we're learning about methane is it's hard to control, especially when you're fracking for it and, and breaking up the deep below ground system and then having well casings that can leak. So we're learning there's a lot of leakage happening in the production of methane that's, that's gone underreported and that we really need to turn the tide on this and decrease our dependence on methane and increase our dependence on renewable energy sources instead. And those can be most easily brought to our buildings through electricity. What are some active steps people can take to lower their carbon footprint and help bring clean energy to the grid? Yeah, so let's first talk about the new construction. Right now, the REACH codes are in place, but people, you know, most of those are applying to mainly new buildings, but people are going to be doing a bunch of additions and remodels that might not be covered by those REACH codes just yet. So work with your architects to take that opportunity in any remodeling or additions to see if you can use that opportunity to ditch your old gas appliances, your gas furnace, the gas cooktop, the gas water heater especially, and uh, get in the electric alternatives. There's a lot of little ways to go about it and just work with SVCE to see how you can do your electrification. Any parting words or advice for our listeners beyond? Well, uh, yeah, I I just think that a lot of times we get uh, pretty upset about the doom and gloom in the climate situation and the direction it's headed. But I have to share with you, it is actually very fun and satisfying to get on the road towards transition and to start making the types of changes in your life that you can be really proud of. And so the the more people, you know, let go of the old ways that our parents had to live and start embracing the new ways that we need to live for our children, the easier this is gonna get. And it can be really satisfying to make these transitions. 
Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you, Laura. Thank you so much, Tom. In today's episode, we had a chance to review a history of the grid and what those technologies look like in the present. But what about the fuel sources of tomorrow? Join me next episode for an exciting journey into the future of renewable energy and the policies that could get us there. As always, I invite you to ask questions, learn more, and take charge. All right, everyone, it's time for the end of the podcast, which means it's our favorite segment called Energy Jokes You Never Knew That You Needed. Welcome back, Colleen. Go ahead and take it away. Okay, this one I keep it in theme with the grid. And so what do electrons like to cook on? And this would be an electric grid dough. (laughs) 